Welcome to episode six of the Players Coalition Pod, a podcast built by athletes to end social injustice and racial inequality across the country. I'm Master Svatsky, host of Untold Stories on Bleacher Report. In this episode, we continue our coverage of the Players Coalition's key pillar of police and community relations. As this issue is so complex, we've decided to continue this series for an additional two episodes. This is part two of three. Here, Anquan Bolden shared the details of his cousin's death at the hands of police. I can remember just like with my cousin's case, the officer was um, who killed my cousin, um, he did a reenactment. And I can see on the, on the video, the detective pretty much telling him, don't, not right now, you don't have to. But he was so arrogant in that moment. I'm fine, I got it. And I'm like, you, you have to be kidding me. And the guy tells him like on five different occasions, like pretty much don't do this right now. And he went ahead and did it. But the only saving grace was my cousin was on the phone with roadside assistance. And the girl on the other end continued the call. So when his statement and reenactment was put to match with the phone call, it didn't match up. And that was the only saving grace that my family had, was that this girl on the other end continued the call. A lot of times when we go talk to, uh, you know, people in, in positions of power, a lot of times they're reluctant to try and bring about change because of consequences that they may face. And it's, um, it's, it's disheartening for us because, and I think a lot of us would agree, our heart is basically for people. When something is wrong, it's wrong. When something is right, it's right. Let's deal with it and let's get past it. But we put people in positions of power who have, and a lot of them may go in with the right intentions. They may go in with, I'm gonna do the right thing. But there's too often other things come into play. There's other motivating factors, whether it be money or whatever it is, other positions of power. And this is something that we, we talk about like as a coalition because we truly wanna see change. But there's just some things you talk about, especially if you talk about police accountability, where there's just this wall put up. And then it's always us versus them. And for us, it's not us versus them. It's us working and living together and doing what's right for people. And then the first response we get is, well, what about cops that get killed? Do cops get killed? Yes. Do we want that to happen? Of course not. I have family member who's in law enforcement. But you can't bring that up every time we try to hold you accountable for the unarmed shooting of black and brown people or people in low income areas. That's not an excuse. But these are the people that are supposed to protect and serve us. 
These are the people who are supposed to uphold justice. So what do we do in this country when those who are in a position to uphold justice don't? Or they break the rules? How do we hold them accountable? As we began this topic in episode five in this series, we started to dissect police accountability. In this episode, we go deeper into some of the power structures and the relationship between the police and the communities they've sworn to protect and serve. Let's explore first the issue of perception. With all of the static between the police and the citizens they're asked to protect, the perception of the police's role becomes essential to understand in order to create real change. Why is there such friction between black and brown communities and the police? Here's Orlando's elected prosecutor, Aramis Ayala, explaining why there is such a disconnect. So when you look at some of the um, Pew research, the numbers show a 60% of police officers believe that those shootings are isolated incidents, while 30% of the community believes that that is the representative of a deeper problem. So we're already starting from a very different vantage point trying to understand what the problem is. And if you see it as an isolated incident, our natural instinct is to dismiss it. So you're on a pattern of dismissals of these incidents because you're saying it doesn't represent anything, just kind of, that was an accident, you know, overlook it. While for the community, it is a consistent process of started with a level of disrespect. For example, when officers go to, if, if I live in a, um, community where there's a lot of police presence and someone has broken into my home, when law enforcement arrives at the scene, they're automatically engaging me as if I have done something wrong. Are there drugs in the home? Did you do this? Do you know the people? Versus really embracing me as a victim. So the level of disrespect begins at the first encounters that aren't dangerous, that aren't violent, that are not threatening. And it begins to grow then with the stops that no one talks about with the disrespectful conversations. Then it elevates to the encounters and all of the angst that goes towards that. Then that encounter has a firearm that is withdrawn and then the firearm is discharged and you have a dead person. So on and on and on, you have a pattern of conduct that for the community, they are seeing this constantly and they are saying, listen, I need to know this is, this is consistent with how I've been treated since I lived here. And the police officers who aren't in that community community policing who may be blind to it because they may be policing the tourist district, for example, in Orlando, or they may be the higher echelon. They're not recognizing that this is a pattern of conduct. So they say this is just an isolated incident and they begin to dismiss it. That is the starting point of dissension, in my opinion, between the police and the communities is how we perceive this. The framing of the issue determines how we ultimately answer the question. Listen to Jeffrey Robinson, the Deputy Legal Director at the American Civil Liberties Union, explain more of the history of policing in this country. I really appreciate the work that uh, the Players Coalition is doing here. And I guess I will start with uh, something I read in Sports Illustrated about seven years ago. A young man named Marquise Weeks had run back a kickoff return for a touchdown, about 101 yards in, a, in an NCAA game. I think he played for Virginia Tech. And when he was interviewed after the game, he was asked, how did you do that? And his response was, well, that was just instinct, kind of like running from the cops. And when I read it, I started laughing, and then I stopped laughing, because I thought, this is not 
actually very funny. And I think his comment touched on something that is uh, important when we talk about policing in America, and that is that the history of policing in America, going back to colonial days, has always had as one of its core requirements the control and suppression of black communities. That is simply the history in our country. Starting in 1669, when Virginia passed a law saying, if a master kills an enslaved person who is resisting, it's not a felony. There is no law like that on, any, on the books in any state in the country. But if you want to go back over the last 10 years and look at the number of unarmed black and brown people killed by police, and then compare that to the number of police who are prosecuted, and then compare that to the number of police who are actually convicted, that law may not be on the books, but that reality is still a reality. And I think one of the important things is to understand the police didn't come up with this mission on their own. This is not something where the police said, this is what we want to do. This is what our country asked the police to do and has asked them to do throughout our history. So you can go through numerous points in our history to show why a badge and a gun have represented some of the most terroristic things possible in the black community in America. That's why what Mr. Weeks said, it's kind of like instinct running from the cops. This goes back generation from generation from generation. And so I think understanding that reality of how police forces were formed, what their initial purpose was, and how that has worked out through our history is important to understanding how we got to this place where there is so much of a lack of trust. Oftentimes, the media perpetuates an image that black and brown people need to be controlled, not protected. Ayala breaks down the cycle of control as it relates to policing these communities. When you're looking for the need to control, when you're looking for individuals out of control, you then begin to find individuals out of control. And when you have cultural differences between how they communicate with each other, it's easy to think that an average conversation that is elevated begins a process of violence. So they need to step in earlier to control. And when we continue to see the concept of black and brown communities needing to be controlled, it's law enforcement who, from historically, that's their responsibility to do it. Then you also have the, the timeline of us as a country beginning to balance, at least trying to balance some of the rights, some of the equality, and then every encounter ends up being a power pull. Who has the power here? And then you have individuals, young black men, who are like, I do know my rights, I do have my rights, and then they have that officer who's in blue that's going to remind them who's in control and it begins to elevate then ultimately it's that firearm being discharged that shows who's in control. There is so much that needs to be changed when it comes to policing in this country. Listen to the author of How the Police Generate False Confessions, Jim Trainum explaining how interrogations need to change. I'm all for due process. I defended criminal cases as a public defender, as a private practitioner. I think all people should be treated fairly but this is super duper process that if you want to allow police officers, every criminal defendant in the United States should have the advantage 
that the police have and under the Police Bill of Rights in Florida. Let me give you an example. Um, the Police Bill of Rights in Florida allows for the police officer to give a statement after an incident at a time and place of his or her choice, okay? They are allowed to, prior to giving that statement, to review the entire file. That means look at all the other statements of all the other witnesses, look at the physical evidence, look at the video evidence in preparation for their own statement. Now you don't need to be a lawyer, you just have to have some common sense, okay? If I'm about to be asked about a, about a very important incident that either threatens my own livelihood or those of others, and I get to see what everybody said about this before I give my statement, do you think I might be influenced to tailor my statement a certain way to either protect myself or the others in a way that's not truthful? I mean, it's, it's, that's an outrage to me. Robinson explains why a badge and a gun doesn't mean the same thing for everybody. The perception coming from police officers or police departments in general, the perception coming uh, from communities about what is actually happening. And one of the things that I think police officers need is a significant education about the history of policing in this country so that they understand when they walk into this community what people are seeing. As a police officer, I may think I'm walking in with a badge on my chest and a gun on my hip and I'm here to do good, and they don't understand that what, what the people in that community are seeing is that badge and that gun and what that has represented for decades before these officers were even thinking about being police officers. They do not walk into communities with an open book. There is a history there. Listen to Alex Vitale. Brooklyn College professor and author of The End of Policing, discussed the systemic flaws in policing. Yeah, there's a problem of racism in policing, but it's not unconscious and unintentional individual discretionary decision making. First of all, we got a lot of explicit racism in policing, and we, we heard the statements read earlier uh, from one of the local union officials, and we saw the officers fired in Detroit a couple weeks ago for the explicit racist statements they were making. And this is not going to be fixed by trying to somehow appeal to some stereotypes that they might unconsciously be carrying. But the problem for me is even deeper than that. It's the mission of policing reproduces racial inequality. When we tell the police to wage a war on crime, a war on drugs, a war on gangs, a war on immigrants, a war on terror, they cannot be friendly. They cannot be unbiased, and they cannot be a source of justice in the community. Ayala further explains why this policing dynamic is not safe for the police or for black, brown, and poor communities. There has to be an understanding and a weighing of it, right? A lot of times we have the conversations, and I'm adamant. I mean, I have been stopped. I understand the concept. I get it. I mean, I grew up black, right? I've been black my whole life, so I understand what it's like. The flip side of it, though, is that when you go on a ride with police, you have to understand that they do face 
some dangers. And unfortunately, that is frequently used as a whole card to, to, to slap it down on the table when it's convenient. And if we can get away from the convenient arguments that help us prove our point and we can have candid discussions about the fears that we both have on both sides, I think that moves us towards a, a more productive engagement and counter and safety for everyone. Because where we are right now, it's not that it's just not safe for police. And it's not that it's not safe for black and brown communities. We also leave out poor communities who are included in this conversation as well. It's not safe for anyone. One of the reasons why it's so hard to reform policing is because of police unions. Listen to Ray Tassif, an attorney at the Florida Justice Institute, on why police reform in this country is a supreme challenge. I am absolutely opposed to racist police unions. And that's what we have in too many cities in this, in this country. Here in Miami, which I'm very familiar with, um, the head of the Miami Police Union, the former president of the FOP in this city, had 34 citizen complaints. He was suspended after a woman filed a temporary restraining order against him. He had 18 use of force incidents, okay? He made racially, uh, uh, racially insensitive, to say the least, racist statements about Beyonce after her performance, okay, at the Super Bowl several years ago. He had, he called Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old child who was gunned down for no reason in Cleveland, Ohio, he called him publicly a thug, okay? Um, guess what happened to this particular officer? He was promoted from lieutenant to captain, okay? Um, police unions in this state um, are in large part buttressed by a scheme of laws we have in Florida which involve the Police Officer Bill of Rights, which, which Florida is one of about a third of the states in the country that has this. It's procedural protections for police officers when they're accused of misconduct on the job. Florida was the second state in the country that enacted such a law. Um, and I'm all for due process. I defended criminal cases as a public defender, as a private practitioner. I think all people should be treated fairly. Every criminal defendant in the United States should have the advantage that the police have and under the Police Bill of Rights. Culture trumps training. If we do not figure out how to change the culture of policing in this country, no amount of training will bring needed change. If we can start to correct how officers are punished and rewarded for their behavior, then and only then can we truly witness a change in the culture of policing. There are dead people over this, and we have lost sight of humanity. We've lost sight of the real impact of what is happening because we're protecting safety or because people are doing their job. There are dead people. There are human beings, there are families that are hurting, and the minute that we begin to dismiss this, we have dismissed our own brother. We have to not just look at, you know, how we do it as prosecutors, that's part of the process, but the real conversation is what message is being sent. NFL Network anchor Jeffrey Shadia talks about the many ways to make a difference and why he's involved in giving back to the community. Part of it's my parents. My, my mother grew up dirt poor in Alabama. She was one of 11 siblings, only one to go to college, left to go to school with a of you know, a footlocker full of clothes and 12, yeah. 25 bucks in her pocket. She wound up becoming a professor of social work 
um, at Washington University and just retired from the University of Michigan. Wow. Uh, when I was growing up, she was always involved in the schools. Um, I grew up in a school system that was kind of like 50% poor, 50% middle class. But and my parents had the money to put me into a private school. But even when I went to the private school, my mom was still getting involved as far as helping the make the academics better at the, at the local high school, sure. trying to get them better books, trying to make sure kids were supported. And so I saw that in her. And then my dad came here from Uganda mm. um, as a teenager. Uh, his uh, He left that country right before Idi Amin took it mm-hmm. over. So we never had a chance to go back and be with his family. So a lot of people helped him along the way, find his way. So I think within my family, there's always been um, a belief that you help people, yeah. that you step in and you try to do the best you can to make sure that other people have an opportunity to succeed. So I think when I got to be in my 20s, I, you know, I started help, helping kids uh, you know, read at, at school. I'd go down to school for lunch and try to help kids read, and then it turned into volunteering and mentoring. And then I got involved in a board. And I remember back when I was younger, uh, I used to have girlfriends who would say, you should do more stuff. You're the perfect guy to get involved. And I'd always say, well, wait till I get to this level. Wait yeah. till I've accomplished that much because I felt like I had to be somebody, yeah. you know, to uh, to contribute. And, and I think what the, the coalition, again, what I like about what they're doing is they're, they're making people understand the importance of service. Yeah. You know, we live in a world today, man, we're so divided for a lot of different reasons. It's almost a point of pride to be on a certain tribe, yeah. Yeah. to yeah. Uh, not listen to anybody else. And um, I was talking to somebody after Kobe Bryant died, mm. and uh, I said the thing that I took away from that, the only positive in somebody dying is that it makes everybody, everybody understands death. Yeah. Everybody understands loss. Yeah. So to see yeah. people come together mm-hmm. and share stories and not have it be, oh, you're about this, you're about that, whatever. It was all about love. Yeah. And it, it just made me realize how much we don't really promote that yeah. as much in this world today. Yeah. So again, this, this whole thing is about love and I'm all about that. The Players Coalition exists to end social injustices and racial inequality so future generations have the opportunity to thrive without barriers. The mission is to achieve social and racial equality using the Players Coalition's influence and support to impact systemic, social, and civic change in policing communities. Listen to Players Coalition co-founder Malcolm Jenkins address the issue of policing in schools. It's been well documented the human costs that come with incarceration and comes with people getting trapped into the system the amount of leaders, fathers, people losing jobs and all the things that they already already struggling people have due to just incarceration. It's too easy to get people trapped up into it. But one of the things that um, we don't talk enough about is just even starting as early as our schools, you have more police officers in these schools than you have guidance counselors. And you got kids that are dealing with, that are coming out of traumatic situations that, are, that have real life issues um, that are completely outside of their control and the way that we choose to deal with it is through the police or through incarceration um, and then the, the the accumulating effect of all of that goes down through generations and so when we start looking at other things around the city like why is Philadelphia so poor how do we climb out of poverty the criminal justice system and the way that we police has a huge uh, effect on that because we're tying up people that, that then are just you know you, you're hamstringing them. They can't climb up because they have this record for some minor stuff. As, as early as a youth in school, um, knowing that they're coming out of a traumatic situation. So, you know, that's, we have to continue to pound on the table to make sure that all of these, these resources that we're allocating are going toward the thing, that they, they're working the way that we want them to work. Because there's no way that 
our kids that are already struggling and need help should, should have more officers in their schools than they do somebody to talk to about their problems. It's time to hold police officers accountable and change the culture. Get police out of schools, stop arresting children, and stop asking police to do so much. Support the mission of the Players Coalition seeking to improve underserved communities. To learn more and to get involved, follow at Player Coalition on Twitter and at Players Coalition on Instagram. Thanks for listening. I'm Mash Desfati.